Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, we speak about vicarious trauma. The way we process images versus words when reading i mean it's different for me i find when i try to when i limit my exposure to all of these media formats that are designed to get you know for these quick bursts of kind of adrenaline and and um and dopamine you know i found that uh very helpful welcome to the holistic life navigation podcast I am your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now.
Vicarious trauma is something that happens a lot, a lot, a lot in the modern world because of all the um, screens, the media, the, the different realities being broadcast around to us, um, the amount of stimulation we take in, and just the uh, technologies propelling effects of communication and connection. Because on the micro level, vicarious trauma really happens individually through thought and imagination. When I think of something, I'm going to feel it. So it starts there. And then it, it goes out to, oh, if someone's telling me something really scary or sad or intense... I might start noticing it in my body as if I'm going through it, right? Or I should say, I may start experiencing it in my body as if I'm going through it. And then let's go to the movie theater and I'm sitting there watching a movie and I'm sweating and my heart is beating and I'm crying hysterically. I'm being so moved by the images in front of me and the story and the characters. I'm with them. I'm vicariously experiencing them. I'm with clients, I'm hearing their stories, I'm on the news, I'm watching the news, and I'm taking in uh, frame after frame of violence and pain and tragedy. These are all the situations where we can can experience, obviously, vicarious uh, experiences and sensations and emotions. But when it crosses into vicarious trauma, it essentially means that our boundaries are being broken by what we're taking in. So my nervous system is attuning to the story, the image, the sound, or the event of something that's threatening or traumatic and overwhelming. And one thing we talk about today is how to notice in your body when you're moving from a place of somatic empathy into a place of vicariously experiencing trauma from over-attaching, identifying, and taking on someone else's reality. Welcome, everybody. I want to start by introducing my colleagues, Alexis Katz. Hi, I'm Alexis. I am a psychotherapist in private practice in Saratoga Springs, New York. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Daniel Shudlowski. Hey, everyone. Danny Shudlowski, a therapist in private practice and somatic experiencing practitioner uh, located in Kingston, New York. Laurie Robbins. Hi, everyone. I'm very glad to be here with all of you as well. And um, my private practice is in Summit, New Jersey. And Linda Duquesse. Happy to be here. I'm Linda. I'm also in private practice, um, and I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so what we're talking about today is vicarious trauma and how we as therapists may have some self-care and different tools that we use to stay embodied when we're experiencing someone's trauma or observing or witnessing or holding space for it, as well as how we experience it in our practice and in our world. Um, Something we don't talk about a lot but I was really excited to start talking about it with everybody. So my first question is just how do you all define or experience it? Vicarious trauma, what does that word mean to you? Just feel it and 
Um, I'll, I'll, how about I'll start with mine and let you all marinate and then someone can raise their hand when they feel ready. Uh, I, I experience vicarious trauma as the nervous system attuning to the state of something else or someone else. So it's similar to our conversation with co-regulation. And sometimes I call it co-dysregulation. Like you're looking at something and your nervous system is becoming activated or dysregulated from the other person, people, event that's also activated or dysregulated. And what's interesting to me about it is that usually in our um, actual circumstance, our body is quite safe, but the nervous system is adapting and reflecting a situation of someone else's who isn't. And then we don't even realize it's happening and then we walk around feeling unsafe. Um, So I'm really interested in having this conversation about the modern world with media, especially. for people listening. And then of course, the conversation as therapists for holding space for individuals. So who wants to, yeah, go ahead, Alexis. Well, I think I want to maybe start by just, for me, the term vicarious trauma indicates a problem. Um, So to kind of start with that, because I think that, and, and, and and I love how training to become a somatic experiencing practitioner has helped me to learn how to resonate with somebody else's nervous system without experiencing vicarious trauma. But there's such a kind of an art to that. And especially when you go into really sitting with people who are experiencing trauma or or experiencing, yeah, experiencing trauma in their body. So I I wanted to add that, like, I think, and, and I think it's interesting to look at like when it becomes a problem, at what point does resonating with somebody or, 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 co-regulating with them become a problem. And like you said, Louise, it's when there's, you're starting, your own system starts to become dysregulated. Go ahead, Linda. I agree with what both of you have said about vicarious trauma um, in terms of being a therapist, but I think that there's been this enormous shift this year with that, in that um, what you're describing is that you're actually safe even though your nervous system is sending you the message that you're not safe. I think as we've been dealing with the pandemic, we have vicarious trauma in a new way, which is that we are not necessarily safe. So what becomes threatened is our own sense of safety in reality, not just in terms of kind of the picking it up from somebody else when we are in fact safe. I don't know that I said that very well. Um, but I know that that's been a huge issue for me, that I can feel like I'm coming into a session really settled and really contained and, and understand, a set, have a sense of safety around the pandemic. And then when I'm working with somebody whose anxiety about that is so high, it becomes really hard for me to maintain my own sense of um, regulation in that setting. I want to I go into that a bit. Um whether you want to respond right away, Linda, or if anyone else does. But I love that because I think um, I'm always interested in defining safety, right? It's like such a nuanced word. And for some people, it can sound like really privileged. For other people, it can sound like delusional and new age. Other people, it sounds like practical. It's such a trigger word I've found um, with the public when I'm using it at times, because for what you just said, um, you can say I'm safe, but then the question is, well, if there's this like inescapable, invisible threat of a virus, let's say, you know, how safe am I really? And so it goes into these different 
I guess I'll speak for myself, it goes into these realms of uh, time for me, of present, past, future, right? Past, present, future. And for me, it's like, if I'm here right now with all of you, like I just got um, a sandwich from a, a restaurant up the street. And here I am with you. In this moment, to my knowledge, I don't have COVID, to my knowledge, right? So the, for me, it's like when, we, when I go back to our co-regulation talk, I can co-regulate to my environment here, to all of you, and to self-regulate to a body that right now is breathing and feeling like, you know, upright and healthy and, and whole. So I can root into the safety, even though there's a small chance I breathed in uh, the virus, let's say, or got it on my hand, or, totally possible. So I'm curious with, with your, de- not even definition, but what you brought into this piece about vicarious trauma. Would, would you consider the mind assessing, expecting, kind of being vigilant for the invisible threat, which is the virus, as a vicarious trauma or just like a sense of hypervigilance? Like, tell me what that means for you. I think, I think that it's, it's both. And that's what becomes difficult, right? Because on the one hand, it is this um, invisible threat. And we know that it's there. And the more that I can stay oriented, as you said, to the present, right, the more that I'm aware that right now I'm fine and that that's that's what's most important and that that's what I have to tune into with a client. But when somebody is spending the whole session um, trying to locate that invisible threat, you know, sort of saying, well, it could be there and it could be there and it could be there and their anxiety is building and it becomes hard at that point to stay in what I know to be true, which is, but right now I'm okay. And right now my client is okay. And that's really clear for me. So for you, the vicarious trauma experience in that moment, witnessing someone else's fear of the invisible threat that you're also experiencing and mm-hmm. holding that safety in that moment with yourself. That makes a lot of right. sense. Does anyone want to add to that? I like that. Or their own. Go ahead, Laurie. Yeah, I love I love this topic because not only does it come up often with clients um, in the office, but it's been coming up a lot with friends and family. And I'm not sure if any of you have had this experience. Um, I love both of, of what you've added so far to this discussion. But what's coming up for me right now is this idea that our previous experiences inform even our what our mind is latching onto as a real or a perceived threat. So if I have a client or right now I've had some some family members who are responding very, very fearfully to the perceived threat because of their own histories and the memory memories early early learning early memories and what what exists in their mind as um a fearful experience is imp- incredibly activating the the idea that going outside even for to go to the grocery store or to go on a hike something that they would typically experience as uh calming or soothing perhaps like the hike or the walk because of their early learning or their early trauma is um, is really anxiety provoking, and it's hard to talk someone out of that when it's so etched in their le- early learning, like I said, or memories 
from the past. Finding that particularly challenging right now. You know, I'm really glad. Um, I'll, one minute, Linda. I'm going to grab you in a minute. I'm glad you said that because that's that's a big piece of the puzzle for me around vicarious trauma that I think is so important to understand. Like, if I'm watching something on the news, like the insurrection, for example, brought up so much trauma history for people. And so when you say something like the the previous experience informs the projected threat, let's say, or the the like what we're assessing, our perception is completely built from past experience, which is what gets so tricky because it's a past experience. It's something you actually went through and experienced. Um, and the body is matching those same sensations now. And so when when you said that, I, I was reminded of when Danny and I went to San Diego for training and our, our flight literally took off like the day or the day before the, the closing of New York City, before uh, masks were mandated, before we even knew what we were dealing with. And we, we all flew like unmasked and we're in a room of 100 therapists hugging and touching each other. And I remember the one day in the middle of the training, I got this sensation in my lungs and I had thought for a second that I, I caught COVID. And I got this huge rush that I almost like fell off my chair and passed out. And I was trying to understand what's the previous experience that's being reminded of through sensation right now. And I used to have debilitating asthma. And so it was my, my chest was like re-experiencing those early sensations of an asthma attack. And it threw me into this body belief that I had COVID and my lungs were shutting down. And I had to do it. Linda was just was saying before, how do I orient to something right now that takes me out of that past memory. But when the past memory is a body memory, you know, the context for it, it can be really scary. But I had the context, it was easier to notice, but I am breathing, it's not getting worse, and it just totally left me. So I just wanted to throw that in because I think that was really important about the past and how that relates to vicarious trauma. Go ahead, Linda. So Lori, um, I think you brought up something that I struggle with all the time, and I don't know if you were talking about this in terms of your clients or just your family, but you said because previous experience informs people's sense of safety or in this instance of not being safe, right? They're highly, highly attuned to the threat, and so they don't want to do things that they might have enjoyed previously. And you said, you know, how do you talk them off of that? And I struggle with, do I have the right to talk them off of that? Because, you know, I, I have a sense of safety in the world. I know that I do. Um, but who's to say that that's correct? Because we're talking about real threats. We're talking about, and that, that's been the case both with the pandemic and with people's concern about um, safety in terms of things politically. I can see that their previous experience has them really, really frightened and panicked, either about the political situation or about the pandemic in a way that I generally don't feel. But how do I know that my assessment is any better than theirs? So as a therapist, I find that to be a really, um, it's a place where our training in terms of trying to help somebody have a sense of safety sometimes conflicts with kind of values about what right do I have to tell somebody they're safe? So Go ahead, that's Laurie. a big question. I'm I love that there. question. That's great. Go ahead, Lori. Um, yes, I just I just wanted to clarify if in fact I use the languaging um, to talk someone out of it or off of it because I'm not 
Um, I don't remember saying that, but if I did, I wanted to shift that languaging because it is something that I'm struggling with more so personally within me that I don't, if it's a family member, especially, I really don't touch it. I kind of just let it be and I try to regulate my own response and just allow it to occur in whatever way it's happening because they're not my client and I don't have control and they're, you know, experiencing whatever it is that they're experiencing. And I respect that. But I, if it's a client, I actually enjoy that so much, this kind of dialogue with them around treatment goals, right? What is it that you're looking to do? If somebody is saying to me, a client is saying to me, I really, really want to attend my, um, you know, my son's robotics event is going to happen. It's in the middle of the country and there's different mandates and rules. And I want to go to this because he's been working towards this for years. So that's what I'm going to contract with my client around being able to attend that event in some way. It really depends on what someone, especially if they're a client, is asking for. And, And I enjoy that. I, I just enjoy that piece of, of the relational work with them around what it is that they, they're looking for in the therapeutic alliance. So I want to, I want to direct our conversation from that because that, that's important to me. I was having the same thought when Linda was speaking. I was thinking, um, for me, like the word that's not being said is consent, right? Like I feel like when someone walks into my office or they, they have a meeting with me, like they're consenting to bend their ego. Like they're consenting to play with their ego and see what am I holding on to or what trauma is undiscovered or I'm going into this 50 minute session and I'm going to be really uncomfortable perhaps or it's like this this sacred symbiotic relationship we have. Um, and like you were saying and like when Linda said, do I have the right? I love that question, particularly for people who aren't working with me like your friends or family or someone at you know a restaurant who is is really hyped or who's talking about what they saw on the news or I don't have the right to stop and say what are you feeling are you sure because they're not giving me the consent and so I when Linda was saying that and I was thinking of the the term you know the right one thing you said Linda was you can only really know your situation and even then there's curiosity around, well, am I assessing it properly? Which is very humbling. Where I'm redirecting us back from that is Alexis's question, which is, when does it become a problem? And and for me, that word problem, what I heard was boundary break. And, and like we know that with trauma, we're almost always dealing with boundary breaks. So when, when I see vicarious trauma, because there's difference between like somatic empathy and vicarious trauma, right? And I would love to go into that a bit with, with everyone. I can take in a story or I can see the news and I can, I can be somatically empathizing with somebody. I can be imagining what they're feeling and feeling that and trying to connect that way. Or it can go into vicarious trauma where my boundaries are being broken. My adrenaline is rushing into my body. I'm in a panic. I'm being triggered back to old memories and situations. I'm identifying with the other person's experience versus connecting and having that that somatic empathy where I know that's yours and this is my feeling. So I'm really curious just what you all think about that. That's also your experience, like the line between 
empathy and vicarious trauma. What, what do you have to say about that? I think it's important. Go ahead, Alexis. Well, I think that the, one of the reasons why many people become therapists is because we're good at being empathetic. Um, we may even be somewhat empathic. Um, and we're, you know, drawn to the work because we, 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 I don't know, I, I guess speak for myself. I think this is true of a lot of therapists that I know that we feel a real connection and it feels very, it feels very meaningful to feel the connection with a client when we're sitting with a client. I think that um, I can speak from my own personal experience in terms of my, as I became a clinical social worker, that training and then my subsequent professional experiences really helped me to understand where that boundary is. And I think I didn't understand that it was a boundary prior to that. Um, I was a school teacher for a, just a few years um, in my previous life. And um, in the, the last year that I taught school was in Brooklyn, the year, the school year after 9-11. So I had been outside of New York City, moved to New York, and then started teaching in the city and had a classroom of kids who I, in hindsight, realized, certainly as, as a professional uh, clinical social worker, looking back, I know so much more now. I wish I had known them. They had been really traumatized. They, I think they had had a view of the World Trade Center from their classroom the year before. Um, they, it was just, it was a, a very chaotic experience that year. Um, and it was one of the hardest years of my life. I know that I was probably the most depressed, you know, I'd ever been in my life at that point, um, really struggled. Um, and, you know, the blessing in disguise was that I left teaching and went into clinical social work, which is, I think, where I can be way more effective. I think I'm a better therapist than I was a teacher. But in hindsight, looking back and knowing that I experienced a lot of vicarious trauma, I think it, uh, I felt extremely dysregulated the whole year. Um, there was a lot of dysregulation in the dynamic between me and my students that I had never experienced with other classrooms in the you know, previous years and other locations. Um, so learning to become a therapist has helped me to understand that there is a boundary. Um, and I love that. And more and more, and I, I mentioned this when I spoke earlier, because, especially becoming a somatic experiencing therapist, I'm, I've learned how to feel into what someone's feeling and connect with them. But the boundary is there. I guess it's still really intangible. I'm still, I don't know that I can exactly answer your question. Like, where is that boundary? It's, I'm able to really feel quite a bit of a connection with somebody, even talking about, or at least around some very intense trauma, um, and yet still feel quite boundaried and also very helpful to them and connected. So yeah, I guess I can't answer your question. I don't know. Well, I, can, I'm I, ask you, can I, I ask you another? Answer, <laughs> can I yeah. ask you a sub question? Based on what yeah, you just said, please. what does it feel like in your body? This is like such an SE question. What, what does it feel like in your body when you start shifting from empathy to vicarious trauma? Like how do you physically know that you're breaking that boundary in your body? Well, I really resonated with what Linda was saying about there have been moments and I think it's, there have been moments where I start to feel the pull into vicarious trauma when talking about COVID because of the conversation that Linda and Lori were just having that we, we don't really know whether we're safe, right? So there is a way of, in which we're in sort of like a continuous war zone and yet trying to help ourselves and our clients heal from the trauma of war, so to speak. Um, so I think I, I felt moments like that. Um, not nearly as dramatic as what I was experiencing as a school teacher in New York City at that time. Um, 
how does it feel different even in my body? I think I just start feeling more dysregulated. I think I, you know what I do? I start leaning in more with that energy of, I need to heal you. I need to fix this problem. So I think what I'm actually more aware of in myself and in my body is the override of the vicarious trauma. So I start to, I'm probably feeling dysregulated and not willing to acknowledge that when I'm sitting with the client. And so I might literally lean, but it certainly energetically feels like a lean. And I have that energy of, I need to heal you. I no longer trust them to just sort of experience or create space. Um, and that's not I have to practice. pause you. That's so powerful. You just said, like, I no longer trust them. Like, that's so powerful. Like, the leaning in is almost like you're orienting toward the source of the threat, which has now become them. <laughs> like, how do I calm that down, right? Yeah. That's amazing. Like I have to, I, I'm in a problem-solving mode now all of a sudden, and that's, that's mm. not useful. That's not the work that I want to be doing. Mm. Um, that's a great... Because I think, because I want to problem-solve. I mean, it's almost like my whole body all of a sudden wants to fix COVID. Or something, you know, it's like <laughs> that's there's right. something impossible in front of me. And that's actually not the work to be done. So then I don't know, speaking to Linda's point earlier, like I, I think that's just, I imagine a lot of therapists are experiencing that. And I don't know all we can, all I know to do is to be mindful of that when that's happening. Well, that's what you just really said. I don't know what else to do about it. Right before I go to Danny's next, but just, I just wanted to reflect back that one thing you said, like I lean in, you know, that's just for everyone listening, just noticing in your own body what it feels like when you're in your own experience, like witnessing and connecting. And when you're leaving your experience, literally like leaving your chair and your support to lean in to try to fix the problem in front of you is stressing you out. That's such a great... And, and your pause. hands are going up right now. I want to articulate that because this is just audio, right? Your hands went up and that's what it feels like for me too. I lean in and my hands will probably actually stay in my lap, but there's an energy of leaning in and my arms get energized and my hands want to do something. So they're mm. like, I just wanted to, to describe that because you just started to gesture with your hand like to do something. And that's also something that I think is for myself commonly. I'm really glad happening. you said that because I, I see that happen a lot in um, personal relationship dynamics, like uh, between partners. Like when you said the hands, I got the image of like the person's on fire and I'm throwing a blanket on them, like their emotional state. And I know we all have those clients where it's a couple and the one says like he or she or they always dismiss my feelings. And that dismissal is, is exactly what we're talking about. Like the feelings become so overwhelming to the person observing or hearing them that they start like taking that on and getting activated and they want to put it out. So I think it's just a, another you know, segue into just how that shows up in the micro. That's really beautiful. Danny, I'm, I'm really curious what you're thinking. Yeah. Um, kind of following up on what Alexis was saying, you know, I can notice a certain restlessness start to happen. I notice my voice getting louder. You know, I've definitely had moments as a therapist in session being like, why is my voice suddenly so loud? Um, or speaking more quickly. And just this, a certain sense of like, you know, again, like Alexis was saying, it's like really trying to change something, but getting like really controlling about it and being like, this needs to change or their experience needs to change and I need to be the one to change it. Um, that whole pattern takes over and it's a very, that for me, that's, that's when I, when I start going there, I know like, Oh, okay. Something's hitting now. And you know, I need to, I need to pause. That's really good. I love, I especially love just the, the somatic experience of trying to change or control. That's something for all of us to just sit in for a moment. I would love to hear, um, Linda and Laurie's input on that for themselves. Like, what do you somatically experience in your body 
when you're trying to change or control. Like mine is totally talking fast. Like I like go on warp speed <laughs> just to like, you know, run over the person in front of me with my mouth. You <laughs> go ahead, Linda. That's what I was going to say. I definitely do that. I, um, I, I get impatient. I don't want them to finish their sentences. I have an, an urge to interrupt because there's something really important that I need to tell them. Of course, later I can look back and see that what I needed to tell them was completely not relevant or helpful at all. Um, so, you know, you fight, you, you try to notice that and not do it, but that's the inclination for me is the interruption. Love that. Love that. Love that. And it's like, when I hear you say that, I'm, I'm imagining the interruption again, just look at the way Alexis said that leaning in. So the person or the, let's even say the TV or the news, whatever it is, that's the stimulant, right? That's what's coming at us, even though there's not intended to, when we're taking it on, I should say, it feels like it's coming at us. So that cutting it off is literally like stopping the charge for a moment. It's like a, it's a boundary, right? It's that fast talking or interrupting is a boundary. That's so interesting to me. Yeah, Laurie, go ahead. I also experienced what um, a few of you have described to a leaning in. It feels almost as if I want to take my arms around whatever, whoever it is that's incredibly activating and distressing and just um, hold it, take care of it, uh, make it smaller. But I also get bigger too. Uh, my voice also raises and there's um, an urge to I guess, I guess assert some sort of control to feel like I have more power over whatever it is that I feel powerless with in the moment. Um, so very similar, the leaning in, uh, sitting forward in my chair. Um, if it's on the screen, I'll lean in even more to the camera and it is an urge to, to fix. Yeah, and so everything becomes more rigid. I think my body also becomes a little bit more, more rigid. Rigid is a really good descriptor, you know, for us, for everyone listening, just to note it. Because I love uh, everyone listening. My hope is they can walk away with some tools of noticing when that boundary between empathy and vicarious trauma is happening. And so you're all giving these really great check-ins with the body. Like what, what's the body doing that tells me it's overwhelmed? Because empathy isn't very overwhelming in my experience of it anyway so connecting and like heart opening even when it's the most painful thing i've ever heard my heart is just open and weeping and it feels great but when it gets overwhelming that's when our boundaries are broken so rigidity is a great way of the body telling us boundary break i'm I'm, I'm protecting myself alexis did you have your hand up i did but i was actually going to basically just say what you just said just to make the point that everything we've just been describing that's that's like the gateway that physiology that each of us just described is the gateway to vicarious trauma so i think we can know that when we're getting rigid when we're physiologically and mentally slipping into that um doing mode we are at least more vulnerable to vicarious trauma if not actually then actually experiencing it um, and I like the connection that the opposite of the rigid rigidity is expansiveness, which is a term that comes up, I think came up a lot, especially in the advanced year of training for somatic experiencing. And I think it's, it's a word I think about a lot, even in just doing cognitive behavioral therapy, I'm thinking about expansion, expansiveness. Um, and it's, so it's interesting to see how that that's also connected to when you're empathetic, 
but not becoming vicariously traumatized, you are helping your client to experience their trauma with more expansion, which will naturally lead to healing. I think that's where the space for healing happens. I like that you said that last part because I, the space, again, in my personal experience, the, the space of healing always takes place in the expansion you know, the protection, the the trauma response, the um, negotiation sometimes, the threat, like all those things are in the, the rigidity, which temporarily rigidity is so good. You know, like we want to be rigid so it can propel us away from something or to show us that something's not working. But when, we're, when it becomes chronic, when it becomes a state that we exist in, especially when it's covert, like low level, the, the healing can really take place, especially for someone who wants to witness or hold space for others. If, if you're holding space from a rigid place, that's a very fragile container. So I like that you're, you're bringing in the resonance here for, for practitioners who are listening. Just that, that ability to essentially lend right, your nervous system to the, the room, whether it's a bunch of kids in a classroom or your family or your client or someone in crisis. Like how open and expansive is your your nervous system for that other person to kind of attune to versus two people attuning the threat together and then getting lost. That's what I I find happens a lot. And is that, yeah, go ahead, Laurie. I was just going to add another piece to that uh, question that you had asked all of us, uh, Louise, about how we feel, how we experience vicarious uh, trauma in our bodies. And something else came to me that I've heard a lot of my peers, uh, fellow therapists, uh, share that they experience too, that when sitting with clients who have been traumatized, that our job is to hold the space for clients to do now, their bodies, you know, their minds to do now with us in the safe space, what they couldn't do then, uh, whether it's a completion of a thwarted fight response or some piece of their, their trauma that maybe has some um, very disturbing visual component to it or imagery, that it's necessary to sit with that and hold that empathic space with them. But um, because I'm such a visual person, quite often it's experienced by my system as, I guess, a boundary violation just because it's intrusive and it's disturbing. And so quite often what I'll need afterwards Sometimes I don't realize it until it's a little bit too late, but it's almost like a sensory, um, a, a, a limiting of my own sensory input. So uh, I'll notice it because maybe there'll be music playing in my house and it'll be a little too loud or the television is on and it's a little bit too loud. Um, a smell, something that someone in my family wants to share a funny video with me. And it's the, it's the um, input of too much stimulation for my system, which feels like a boundary violation because of what I've heard in a session three hours earlier. And it's not until that moment when I realize I'm very, very activated that I just need complete quiet, actually. It's usually quiet. And then I breathe and I kind of gain my own, I gather my own sense of you know, safety in my body and I'm I'm good to go again. But I just wanted to add that piece to why forgot to add before about uh, sensory input and, you know, needing to sometimes hear those things, which 
are important to hear as therapists, I think, to help our clients heal. So I want to I want to use that as a bit of a springboard to ask a final question. I can't believe I mean I could talk about this for hours with with you all. It's so there's so many layers to it. Um, but when you were saying that, just about underst- really understanding that word boundary violation, and that that when you're taking in, like you said, you're very visual. So what I'm assuming you meant, correct me if I'm wrong, is someone's telling you a traumatic story and you are seeing it in your mind. And that's right. Yeah. And that's impacting your body. And so what, what that, where that goes for me is I think of media and I think of screens and I think of the news and I think of social media as well. Like any kind of visual media where something's being broadcast to your eyes. Um, and this last year has been like so overwhelming with the amount of trauma being broadcast. It's not as if this trauma just exists suddenly last year. It's just being broadcast more than ever because of our devices and our, our phones and such. I had the experience a couple of weeks ago during the Capitol riot where I was watching the, the riot on my, my little like 14-inch screen, um, computer screen. And in the background, it was in front of my big window here in my office, and the background was this gorgeous sunset. And I was noticing, like when we were talking about boundary break, my nervous system wasn't taking in the sunset at all. It wasn't taking in the quiet streets in my town. It wasn't taking in my plans. It wasn't even taking in my breath. It was just taking in the riot. And I think I'm going to say what Alexis said. I felt my body, my shoulders coming up. And I felt this leaning inward and this like obsession with wanting it to resolve, you know, that feeling when you're watching the news, and you're like waiting to hear the final story. So you know, there's a resolve. And then I, I realized, okay, my reality right now is this mountain and a setting sun and these plans and my breath and my wonderful client I just worked with. Like, that's my reality. What's it like to take that in? And it was this immediate shift into the parasympathetic. And then I was able to actually watch the riot from this like dual state of, okay, this is happening there and right here, there's no threat. And it was so nice. Now I've been media fasting for 16 years. I haven't owned a television. I don't watch TV. I only got a smartphone a year ago. I'm not someone that watches the news, but I started since COVID because it's so intense. I was just trying to know what was happening. And so I've never... But I, I, I was media fasting because I didn't have the tools I have now to like know when that boundary was breaking. So I had to just completely abstain. It was like abstinence. I'm curious, that being said for each of you, what's, what's your own personal way, whether it's with a client, whether it's with um, uh, media, whether it's with uh, someone in your life, what's your personal way of bringing that charge down and finding safety when there's so much being broadcast to you that's traumatic what's your way go ahead linda so as a as a general rule um at some point in the past four years you know i had to set some clear boundaries for myself which was that there was going to be no social media in my bedroom i still have a phone in my bedroom because i have family members that i'm concerned about i want them to be able to reach me but I don't check news. I don't check social media, nothing like that in the bedroom, trying to keep that a safe space. And that's something I've advised for clients a lot. Um, Going back to the Capitol riot, that was probably the first time for me, I think because I was watching it in live time, 
So it was really frightening. I, I wasn't able to do what you described, Luis, at the time. I felt really afraid. What I did afterwards, because it was very, very hard to shake that sense of fear and how terrible that was, um, I kind of did a SE exercise on myself afterwards and rewrote the scene with there being so many police there that they held them back and they never got in. And so when I would think about what happened, I would flash to this other image of them being held back. Um, just as a way to settle my system. I, I wasn't delusional. I was perfectly aware that's not what happened, but I needed to kind of go to that in order to just catch my breath sometimes and think about what actually had happened. So two very different kinds of responses to, to media. I like that. So safe space for you, like a sacred space with a, a, a firm boundary of no media coming in, which is the bedroom. And then giving yourself a visualization to renegotiate a reality just to settle your body, not to delude yourself. I like that. How about you? I saw Alexis next. Well, uh, talking about the the attack on the Capitol um, makes me realize that, um, you know, when it was happening, I was actually meeting with clients and learned about it through a client who, who's, anyway, I can't go into details, but they found out about it and then shared it. And I think I'm realizing now because I was, in literally in my therapist chair and metaphorically, um, I really processed it. I had to kind of stay. Um, and, and then it's making me more aware of whatever that boundary is. So I, I was transparent. I mean, she knew I cared about it too. So I wasn't going to pretend that I didn't, I was able to do that. I actually really didn't feel dysregulation or vicarious trauma during that time. It was yesterday I was listening to a more recent episode of This American Life where they interview one of the um, Capitol Police, um, who's a, a black man, and just his experience of it. And I that made me tear up. I was, you know, cried a bit. Like, I, and I think I was really experiencing much more helplessness. I was driving while I was listening to it. And I think I just really, like, literally, well, not literally, but didn't have my guard up in the way that I I, I was on that day. Just making me aware of, and that's okay. I don't regret that. I think I experienced a lot of empathy for the for the man speaking in the podcast about what he went through. Um, I mean, tremendous hostility, and you know. Anyway, we know what happened, but um, just makes me realize the the difference in general. Though I'm I'm similar to you guys. I don't. I, I try to be really conscientious about managing social media, my news intake. I like listening to the daily because it's long, but it's it'll be like a half an hour on one current topic. So it feels manageable. I feel like I learn a lot, but it's, it's, I'm like really turning and facing towards that topic for that 20 or 30 minutes while I'm listening to it, learn a lot about it. And then, so there's a, there's a way of compartmentalizing or containing it so that it feels less overwhelming. Uh, Danny, go ahead. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one thing that I found is that reducing exposure to images is helpful um, that the way we process images versus words when reading, I mean, it's different. And I think that um, for me, I find when I try to, when I limit my exposure to all of these media formats that are designed to get, you know, for these quick bursts of kind of adrenaline and, and, um, and dopamine, um, I found, you know, I found that uh, very helpful. Because 
Well, I can go on for a while, but basically that just reading, the way we process when we read and the way we process when we view images is much, much, much different. And people like, you know, this is something that people like Marshall McLuhan used to write about, Neil Postman um, wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is a really good uh, book around this topic. But, um, you know, this is a very new development for human beings, this ability to be exposed to, to these images constantly. I mean, 200 years ago, we wouldn't have even seen a picture of what happened. We just would have read an article. And our nervous system responds differently to those two things. So I found that that's, uh, that, that makes a difference. Not that I can, I have trouble keeping to those boundaries, but you know. That's great. I love that. That's a great suggestion. Laura, you get the final word. For me, it's very similar to what everyone else is describing. It's um, a lot of the imagery. I have to be very mindful of keeping that boundary. I'll listen to the news rather than um, watching it. And, um, and sometimes even the volume, if a voice is, is loud, I'll literally turn the volume down on my phone or radio, whatever I'm listening, however I'm taking in the, the information. And so I'll have a boundary in that way. I love that. I find since the pandemic doing a lot of telehealth work, it's so easy when I find myself getting overwhelmed or activated with a client, if I just turn the volume down like two notches, it completely shifts my nervous system. It's incredible. When you're in person, you can't do that. I mean, you could, but it wouldn't be really fair. So it's nice because they get to have their activation and I get to have my boundary. I think it's really fun. Thank you all so much, as always. This has been really, really helpful and enlightening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I learned a lot from it. I learned so many different perspectives. And I think the piece for me that felt most groundbreaking or grounding is those little somatic experiences, those body sensations that tell us our boundaries are being broken. So again, when we're in that state of somatic empathy, we're fully connected. We understand someone's story. We're we're not identifying, but we're connecting to their story. We might cry a little bit. We might imagine and feel what it would feel like to go through what they're going through. That somatic empathy propels us to connect and help and shift and change and advocate. It's a gorgeous thing we have as human beings. Then it crosses in a very covert way into the vicarious trauma. And we know that because we go from a state of expansiveness and openness and vulnerability and connection to a place of rigidity, fear, trying to control the situation, and those, those little physiological shifts that tell us we're leaving our center and ourselves and we're attuning to a threat or an activation. And like Laurie said, that's rigidity. Like Alexis said, that's leaning in. Like Danny said, that's when we're talking really loud. Linda mentioned cutting people off. And I find myself, I'll talk really fast. So we can identify in ourselves, what does my body do when it's getting overwhelmed by something outside of it? And as we embody that experience or reflex or body response, we we gain access to this asset of the body, which is like a temple bell that rings and says, go inside, find what you need, and take good care of yourself.
Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath and just notice. What's your body doing right now? Sit with it. Let it speak to you. And let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. For more information on my work, including my online courses and healing circles, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, where I share weekly philosophies and resources to help you release stress and trauma from your body so that you can live a happier life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give in to mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.